Welcome to the Every Voice Now podcast, where we bring voices of color into the spotlight. In every episode, you'll hear stories of our authors of color, how God led them to write their books, and the challenges they had to overcome along the way. Hi, everyone. It's Paloma Lee here, and I'm so excited to introduce our guest today. Daryl E. Hall is the campus pastor of Elizabeth Baptist Church in Conyers, Georgia, where he regularly preaches and teaches across five generations. He's also the author of the IVP book, Speaking Across Generations, Messages That Satisfy Boomers, Xers, Millennials, Gen Z, and Beyond. It's a book that's jam-packed with research about generational communication, but at the same time is so enjoyable and accessible. I can't wait for you to hear Daryl's story of his journey into speaking, preaching, and eventually writing. It's a story that truly shows how God often uses the parts of our lives that we least expect, and how the Holy Spirit is leading and teaching and preparing us, even in the moments that feel uncomfortable, that feel uncertain, and even coincidental, on the surface at least. Daryl is so humble and also hilarious. He has some great stories about his adventures in speaking and writing. So, let's get on with the show. Well, we're excited to welcome Daryl Hall to the Every Voice Now podcast today. And to start off our conversation, Daryl, could you share about your ethnic identity and what are some key moments that stand out to you along the way in that journey? Great question. I'm a black man and I have been born and raised in a predominantly African-American city, born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. And the benefit of that is being able to be born into an environment and a culture where black leaders and black people were seen and cast in positive lights. In my city, we celebrate the history of being, you know, the birthplace of the civil rights movement. We celebrate the home that Martin Luther King Jr., you know, lived in the church where he pastored. I think another benefit of being born and raised in Atlanta is we've had a succession of black mayors who have led our city well for some time. You know, I was born in 86. I'm a millennial. And so from the mid eighties up until now, I've only seen black leaders in my city. I was educated in Atlanta public schools. And through that experience, I had mostly black teachers. I didn't have a teacher of another ethnicity until I got to Bible college. So until I was a freshman in college, did I have a teacher of another ethnicity? So my whole life, I was educated by black men, by black women, on top of my family and my African-American church in a city like Atlanta. So I think that because of the blessing of being born in this city and being connected to various African-American institutions, I don't think I realized the fight that many Blacks have for individuation and ethnic identity and ethnic pride and self-respect because of the ecosystem I was born into. Granted, Georgia was a part of the original 13 and definitely a place where racism still exists and definitely a place where slavery and segregation, you know, persisted and uh, it still does in many ways. But Atlanta is like a bubble in the South that has a uniquely or distinct 
culture from the greater Southeast region of our nation. So that's been a blessing for me. And then now growing up, I've had different markers where, where being able to reflect on my journey has given me great gratitude, but also being able to see many Blacks who matriculate or who move to Atlanta to have that Black experience has helped me not take for granted, I think, what many people in my race and ethnicity seek out. And now that I have three sons, my wife and I have intentionally raised them in an interracial community. Even though our church is predominantly Black, we've intentionally moved to an interracial zip code and community. And I think that one of the markers for me is now being a dad. I want to disciple and develop in my children this ethnic dexterity where they can engage with people of different ethnicities without losing who they are. And I think being able to train them and teach them about, uh, you know, black history and black culture has been a marker for me of ethnic identity. That's amazing. Yeah, that's so great. And part of that I know has been that you've been preaching since the time that you were a teenager. And so what was that like growing up as a kid? Did you know that this was one of your giftings? How did you come into public speaking? Growing up, I've always had a gift of gab, but usually it got me in trouble. So talking too much, talking at the wrong time, talking too loudly, <laughs> I usually was the cause behind me getting in trouble at home, at school, and at church. And I have, you know, vivid memories. I can recall one time I was home and I was saying some things I shouldn't have, shouldn't have been saying. I was in like elementary school. I was a small kid. And my mom was inside and I was outside and she came to get me to tell me she heard me. And she told me then that my voice carries and that even when I try to whisper, I'm terrible at it because my voice carries. I accepted Jesus. I was about six years old and I can recall now the stirring of the spirit in my, my soul. I felt the Holy Spirit. I just didn't know what it was. Then by the time I got about 14 or 15, for whatever reason, some of the pressures I was dealing with at home, some of the pressures I was dealing with in social relationships at school just led me to start reading the Bible for myself. I can't even take credit for it, to be honest, because I was a normal kid. I was into all the stuff normal kids were into, video games, playing with friends, sports, that kind of stuff. But I started reading the Bible three chapters a night. And I remember having this parallel Bible with NIV and King James right next to it. And I would read through multiple chapters of scripture per night in the NIV. And I was telling nobody I was doing it. None of my friends knew. I would close my room door. My mom didn't even know. And right about that same time, my mom, who had me when she was 15 years old, came to me and she said that, you know, in a few years, college was coming and I had to go to college, but she had no money to send me. So we had to figure out a way for me to go to school with scholarships. As God's providence would have it, all of the institutions, I told you earlier stories about school, church, and home. Well, in my school, in my church, and in my boys and girls club, almost around the same time, these oratorical contests started popping up. And I was terrified to speak in public. My first speech I ever gave in public that I remember, I was about 14 or 15, and I was terrified. But I had this need for scholarships. I had this gift of gab. And through a painstaking process, a lot of mentors pouring into me and a lot of opportunities, 
I lost and lost and lost and lost all these oratorical contests for two or three years. And then as a senior high school, I started to win. And I won every contest I entered on every level, local, statewide, regional, international, national. And simultaneously, I realized God was calling me to preach. And I didn't even know that's what where the Lord was steering me. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I was 17. I could see so clearly now uh, how God had used these circumstances to draw me close to him and really to point me in the direction of, of my calling and life's purpose. So <laughs> I started preaching and I shared it with my family, with my church, and I got a lot of support, which helped. That's amazing. I love that story. <laughs> Do you remember that? Like the first time when you won your first competition, how was your reaction when that happened? It was surreal because I thought that my ticket, quote unquote, out of the socioeconomic disadvantage I was born into would be typical, right? Athletics or something that I thought was typical because that's what all the you know boys my age were into. I had no idea that the ability to communicate in public, I, first of all, I had no idea it was a, one of the top fears in the world, claustrophobia. I also had no idea that it was just a gift that seemed to be hardwired into who I was. So other people were amazed, but I was more amazed because the experience of communicating in front of a group put me in a surreal space that I had never been in in any other activity I was engaged in. So People were watching me, but they didn't realize I often felt like I was watching God in me. You know, it was kind of out of body. And then the winning and the scholarships was just ice on the cake, to be quite frank with you. You know, yeah, it helped me to fulfill what my mom wanted, but I discovered something deeper. I discovered meaning and purpose and strength and confidence. What it felt like for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And even when I wasn't preaching sermons, it was still the Holy Spirit. So it was surreal, to say the least, because it was something that was so apparent that I didn't see until the moment. <laughs> you know, it's just so, yeah, I reflect fondly and I'm thankful to God for how he uses circumstances to bring out the best in us. Yeah, that's so cool. What happened from that point on then? And how did you continue to get involved with ministry? And, and who were some of the people maybe along the way who helped you figure out and discern what you wanted to do vocationally? So around the time I was graduating high school, by this time I had been greatly impacted by mentors in the Boys and Girls Club and also in my church. And so in the Boys and Girls Club, there was a guy named Marlon Andrews who really at about 13, he's, I would credit him with saving my life or steering me in a direction that helped to save my life, taught me a lot of life lessons. And he really just helped me be a mature teenager and a healthier person. And so once I got into the speaking, he helped some, but then I began to kind of get help from other people beyond him. And I remember there were two people. The reason it sticks out to me is because remember, now I'm a black kid. I'm born in a black city. I go to a black church, a black school, black boys and girls club. But there were white people who sat on the board of my boys and girls club who took a liking to me. And two, to be particular, one's name is Simon Bloom. He's a like a rock star litigator in Atlanta. And I ended up working for him for a few years after that. But another is Susan Conley. She's a friend of mine to this day. I'm 35 now. And I met her when I 
was like 14. What she would do is she would get my club director to take me from the club to her office at the Bank of America building in downtown Atlanta to Ernst and Young. And I would walk into this boardroom setting that was so completely different from the world I grew up in. And I was me and my club director who brought me, Daryl Sims. We were the only two black people in the room. And there were about 25 people in this room who sat around this table. And the only reason we were there was for me to give my speech and for them to critique me. And we did this for, you know, 30 minutes to an hour at a time, multiple times a month. And those people just really helped me to hone the skill. Then once I realized God was calling me to preach, it was September 11, 2003, which I believe was a Friday or Saturday, because even before it was the infamous 9-11, it was my mom's birthday, September 11. And I remember I was riding in the car with my aunt and I was just an emotional, not wreck, but I realized I think God wants me to preach. Am I crazy? Am I losing it? And so we drove home and we sat in the driveway at my grandmother's house for like an hour and a half, two hours talking. And I remember just sobbing and, and, and acknowledging, I think this is what God wants me to do. So my aunt was the first person I told. She gave me Rick Warren's book, uh, Purpose Driven Life, which was the first book I ever read cover to cover outside of like school, being forced to read at school. It was a book I wanted to read and also besides the Bible. And my grandmother was the next person I told. And we told my pastor the next day. And I just recall support and love and really affirmation. It was almost like I was the one who was realizing this, but everybody else was already convinced. Like, what took you so long? (laughs) Yeah, you're 17. What took you so long? You know, we thought you knew at 12 and I had no idea. You know, it was one of those things where I was, you know, just, you know, (laughs) So, yeah, once I realized God wanted me to preach, it was my youth pastor, Milton Campbell, my aunt, Mauricia, my grandmother, who I affectionately call T-Dot, my pastor, Pastor Oliver. Those four people really supported me, encouraged me, mentored me, discipled me, coached me, guided me, gave me materials to read, talked to me. And never once from those four did I ever question that this is what God wanted me to do with my life. Even if I was unsure, they were sure. So it helped. Okay. First of all, that is crazy. I'm imagining you in this boardroom. Like that's so intimidating, especially at that age. So it's, it's just amazing that like you were able to push through and still do that. And yeah. And they were loving me, but they were direct. So I would deliver a five minute speech and then they would don't do this, do this, work on this eye contact. Nope. You're talking too fast. Remember this part? Everybody would coach me. And then they would say, all right, do it again. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Which is hard to hear for anybody at any age, but especially True. like in your teenage years. That's I can't imagine how beneficial that was after the fact. It probably wasn't pleasant in the moment. But right. um, <laughs> but it sounds like that was kind of a really emotional realization that you had, how you were saying everyone else saw this. and you kind of were the last to know (laughs) that this was your calling. What elicited that deep emotion? I think in the moment what made me so emotional is I realized all of the things in my life that I didn't understand, how now God had used it all. So I realized why this gift of gab had got me in trouble for so long. I was misusing a gift. 
you know, I realized now this burning I felt in my stomach wasn't just feelings. It was the Holy Spirit. And I could remember God speaking to me at eight and 10 and 12 and 13 in ways that only in retrospect could I appreciate. Also, I was at a very pivotal time because I was about to go to college. And I just remember trying to lay out this three to five year plan and wanting to do it, hoping it would translate to some success and I could take my life and rise above my disadvantaged origins to do something positive with my life. And then God shows me what he wants me to do right in the nick of time where <laughs> where now I got to make these big life decisions. I think as well, I had been I didn't run. I did question my motives. But I didn't know that it was the Holy Spirit testing my motives. I thought it was just me, you know, fantasizing about, man, I heard this preacher preach this. Oh, man, I saw my pastor do this. I think I could do that. Wait, wait, why would I think I could do that? Who do I think I am? I need to, you know, and all of this back and forth in my head had been going on for about a year and a half. But I didn't know it was the Holy Spirit guiding and leading me to this moment. So I think I was so overwhelmed because I felt seen by God. Felt, felt like I mattered in a way that I hadn't felt in any other area of my life. I feel like what seemed random and like a mistake from my conception to my upbringing to, you know, life experiences. Now I could see that it wasn't a mistake at all. It was actually all purposeful or at least redeemed. And I just really felt like overwhelmed that God would let me do this. Cause even the kids in my church, I mean, the church I grew up in is pretty prominent. And of all the kids I grew up around, I would have picked at least 10 of them, <laughs> you know, to do something, quote unquote, prestigious or important. You know, I wouldn't have picked me. I think that's why I was overwhelmed because it seems like God, God was picking me to do it. And, you know, I think it was just gratitude and perspective all at once kind of just overwhelmed me. So as you continued in ministry and such, before maybe even this book was an idea in your head, what were some of the moments that maybe you look back now and see, oh, I was learning how to communicate across multiple generations and to speak effectively? What were some of those times that were really impactful that would later kind of pave the way for you to write this book? So some of the things that, that helped were so I started preaching at, at 17. I preached my first sermon. I was 17. It was April 25th, 2004. And I remember it like it was yesterday because like a couple, my church is, I grew up in a mega church. It became a mega church right as I was beginning to preach. And I remember my first sermon, there were people of all ages there and my peers were there, but older people, it was a couple hundred people. And it was a defining mark for me because the experience let me know that I wasn't crazy. My church community, the football team from my high school showed up, peers, you know, my parents and grandparents. I mean, it was it was so, so much support that actually my heart breaks for, you know, people who don't get to experience a similar type support in their calling. So my first sermon was a tremendous marker. The other thing was. So now I'm like 18, 19, 20, and my pastor is in his early 30s, and I was his primary backup preacher. And so he would be out for whatever reason on Sundays, and we had two or three services with 
three to four thousand people coming to church every Sunday and I would be his primary backup. Or if he was preaching, I would be his assistant in the pulpit. So I would like do the prayer or the welcome or, you know, and I was just trying not to fumble the ball. I wasn't trying to communicate effectively across generations. I was trying not to embarrass myself, my family. I was trying not to make my pastor look bad because he left a kid. (laughs) He let a 19 year old preach to a room with 2,500 people in it who were old enough to be my parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles. I was just trying not to embarrass everybody involved. So when I look back on that, I was trying to just swim, trying not to sink in fear and in these tremendous opportunities I was receiving. And when I look back, I'm like, oh, God was teaching me, (laughs) you know, I wanted people to take me serious because I was so young. But I realized the effort and energy I was putting into it was the Holy Spirit developing in me this ability to communicate with people of different ages. Then it got really weird. And I tell this story in a book when I can recall one day that I communicated the same message to three different age groups. And it wasn't because I was so, you know, in perceptive. No, it's because I only had time to develop one message. And then I was terrified that I had to communicated to the children, you know, at their chapel early in the day to our elderly population at the noonday time and then to the teenagers because I was their youth pastor at 7 p.m. So I am trying to just survive this Wednesday. I'm not trying to be effective to all generations. I'm trying to survive this Wednesday. And I got one sermon because I only had enough time to develop one. And I just was glad I lived to teach another day. And then 10 years later, as I'm writing this book, I'm like, oh, <laughs> so <laughs> I am just in shock at how you handled the that's a lot of pressure. Like, yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> I know that wasn't just an isolated incident where you had to preach to three different yeah, generations yeah. in one day, but you probably had to do that all the time. But I, yeah, I love seeing yeah, I too how. You know, those moments that you mentioned, you don't realize that God is teaching you these things in the moment. It comes later that you realize those were very appointed learning moment. I'm wondering now about the origin story, really, of when the book did become a seed in your mind and what was going on in the world at that time. What was going on with you and your church that you realized this is something that people need to hear about? And I have a really important and valuable perspective to offer on it? First of all, okay, I was in my doctoral program and it was, I graduated in 2019. So it was between 2016 and 2019. And I remember that one of the biggest lessons I learned from working on a doctorate is how smart I wasn't. (laughs) Through other layers of school, I felt like I was smart, you know, school came easy. I could read easy. I could Test taking skills were easy. But once I got to that level, I realized how much I didn't know because I was challenged to hone all this general knowledge into one area. And then it overwhelmed me because then I realized, wow, I thought I used to know a lot about a little about a lot. Now I have to know a lot about a little or I have to be go deep in one area. And there's so many one areas to go deep in that I'm overwhelmed. So first of all, I was terrified by the dissertation I had to write and the research I had to do. So a few years were passing and 
I was trying to think through my experience and what could I, I wasn't even trying to per se think, what could I uniquely add? I was trying to think, what is unique about my experience that I could investigate? I wasn't even thinking about the greater population of who could be blessed or who could benefit. And I went through different variations, obviously, of what my project could be about. And then as I was one book I read really inspired me, Generational IQ by Hayden Shaw. And Hayden did the forward for my book. And now we're, you know, uh, we become friends. And I'm just amazed that one of my favorite authors knows me, <laughs> but whatever. So I read his book and I realized through his book and, and a few others, Leslie Williams has a book called When Anything Goes. And uh, books like those two are the first that come to mind. Really started to start in me what I was passionate about based on, I would describe it as baptism by fire. So my life circumstances was baptism by fire. I didn't choose this. <laughs> it was enter oratorical contests or don't go to college and disappoint mom. It was you keep losing oratorical contests, but don't quit until you win. It was, oh, God gave me the gift of gab to learn because he wanted me to preach. I didn't know that. Then it was, don't embarrass your pastor in church for letting a 19-year-old speak <laughs> on Sunday morning. Then it was, you know, you only have, it was all circumstantial. I was forced to react to conditions out of my control. Then when I got to the point of wanting to write the book, then I, it was the dissertation, which was another circumstance out of my control that forced me to have to think <laughs> about, okay, what am I? What has God been doing and what have I been doing? What am I currently doing? And I took it from the standpoint of the campus I was at. I was planning, you know, our fifth campus was open. and I was the first campus pastor in our church's history. And I realized how many people in my congregation were older than me. And I was a nervous wreck for like the first two years, two or three, because I was trying to be what I thought they wanted a pastor to be and sound how I, you know, I was trying again, not to fumble the ball, but at the same time, I felt this tug to be myself. And I didn't know why these people who were twice my age or old enough to be my big brother, big sister were coming to my church as well as people my age. I didn't know what I was doing because I felt frantic. I was an anxious wreck. So I would wear Jordans and jeans one Sunday and a robe the next. And I tell these stories in the book because I was so all over the place with who am I as a preacher and why are these people here, you know, besides just hearing the word. And so the dissertation made me focus on going deeper in this one area. And what was happening in my world, I think was a reflection of what was happening in the world. And that is this, the world in the late alts, 2015 to about 2020, the millennial generation was starting to become this hot group that people were trying to reach that nobody really understood. Everybody was speaking about, but nobody had, I, I didn't really see a space where people had really unpacked who we were as a generation, let alone connecting it to how to communicate with us beyond just lingo, right? Listening to the hot popular songs, picking out some lyrics and applying lingo. You know, communication is not lingo. And I feel like many preachers meant well, but lingo is a cheap way to try to do what they're really wanting to do, which is connect linguistically on a language level. And that's what was going on in the world. And that's what was going on in my world. And I was trying to figure out 
is what I'm doing in my world helpful to the world? Like, is what's happening at my church and is what happened in my life, would that help other ministers and encourage them, regardless of age and stage? And <laughs> that's kind of what led me to want to investigate it. Before we get back to the show, I just wanted to let you know about a book from IVP called A Just Passion, A Six-Week Lenten Journey. This short book is a collection of Lenten devotions featuring contributions by various IVP authors, some who've been featured on this show, like Sheila Wise Rowe and Terry Wildman. It's a collection of short readings, breath prayers, and scripture passages from the First Nations version to guide you through a six-week journey of repentance, lament, worship, and healing. A Just Passion has been curated to hold in tension the immense weight and the hope of the Lenten season, so stick around until the end of the show to hear how you can get a great discount on this book. You're listening to the Every Voice Now podcast, and I'm Paloma Lee talking today with Daryl Hall, author of the IVP book, Speaking Across Generations. Daryl, you've shared about some of the ways that speakers and preachers try to connect with their audiences by using certain types of lingo or these other cheap forms of communication. But could you share a little bit more about how you became comfortable with and started to finally embrace your own voice? Like, when did you finally feel like this is authentically all of myself speaking here? Oh, that is a great question. I started as a campus pastor in 2014, so it's been eight years now. And I honestly think it took me the first two or three years where I feel like for the first couple of years, I was just more like a tape recorder. I was saying all the right things, you know, open your Bibles, turn to Genesis. This word means such and such and such. And what God is, you know, if, if you go back and listen to my messages, it was, you know, theologically, biblically, you know, aligned. And well, it just wasn't my humanity. My humanity was greatly reduced, my personality. So I think what happened was the learning curve was steep for me in the beginning. And that curve began to flatten a little bit after a few years of this new rhythm in ministry where I went from being so, I think I may have left this stage out. I was a youth pastor across four campuses before I became campus pastor of one campus. So for four or five years, I was driving around preaching to youth at all four of our campuses on Sunday morning, but I was a millennial. They were young millennials. You know, there wasn't a generational issue. When I became campus pastor, it was different because now it was all ages and stages present. And that's what made me nervous. It's like, man, I was just getting used to being this cool preacher that all the youth love. And now I'm in here with my aunties and uncles and (laughs) I don't want to lose, you know, whatever that cool thing was I was doing. But now what do I have to be for them to see me as as pastor? And so that's the tug I was in, plus the learning curve of how this role is different from that one. And I think that curve started to flatten right at the same time that I began to just rest in who God called me to be. And it was organic, I think, because there was more anxiety than needed to be around preaching and leading and influencing. And it was making me plastic. It was making me perform, but not show up in my personality. And the fear of being plastic became greater than the fear of not being enough. And 
once the fear of being plastic, you know, exceeded the fear of being responsible enough at 28, I think that's when I just, I feel like the Lord just let the air out the balloon. Like, hey, Daryl, just relax. <laughs> just be you. And I think it was organic. And then I think the affirmation from my congregation, the feedback, the dialogue I was getting, obviously from my wife, I think all that stuff kind of helped as that learning curve was was not as steep after a few years in the position. I could kind of relax and rest in who I was and appreciate or at least, you know, be authentic to, you know, my personality. And then people started to affirm me more for my authenticity than they did the quality of my preaching. It was almost like people would praise God for and affirm me for just being me more than they did for how marvelous the sermonic concept was. And I realized people want a human, not a professional when it comes to pastoring and leading. And that just helped me to be me. And the people love me for it. And I love them for making it easy for me to be me because I was so fearful that they needed me to be something else. I think that'll be really encouraging for people in those similar roles to hear that story from you. That's yeah, super affirming of just learning how to to be you. And sometimes that, like you said, it just later on people are connecting in ways that you you didn't expect. I want to know more about your like writing voice too and how what was that process like as well in kind of deciding how you wanted to write the book, how you were styling it. What were some of the things that went through your head as you were figuring out how to structure all of that? It was painstaking because I realized that there is a big difference between speaking to communicate and writing to communicate, that there are different tools you use. There are different hacks you use. There are different rules of engagement. And I've spent my whole life or at least half my life honing the ability to communicate through speaking that. As a speaker, I'm way past who I am as a writer, but now I have this contract with this publisher. <laughs> I have this contract with this publisher and I have to produce this book. So, so my writing process in the last, I think, five to six years has undergone significant transformation. It started on the doctoral level. When I had to write my dissertation, I remember, so in the program, it was either A, B, or F. Anything under a B was an F. So it was like, I think the lowest you could get was like an 82 or 81, right? And everything else is failure. So, you know, consider myself a pretty smart guy and I would try to use all this flowery language to show how well, well read I am. And yeah, you know, I got a couple master's degrees and I've read a couple books. And I remember writing this paper for one one of my seminars, intensives, that I thought was, you know, yeah, my, they're going to be impressed. And I got like a, a low grade on it, like an 83. And I was completely humble because I really put my elbow into this one. So I thought, and all the critique they gave me boiled down to this, use shorter sentences and simpler language to explain complex ideas. And I was trying to use complex sentences and elevated language to prove my ability to communicate complex ideas. And that low grade, not only did it puncture my ego in a good way, it reshaped 
what I try to do in writing, which is like in speaking, I don't try to be impressive. I try to connect. But in writing, I was trying to be impressive. <laughs> when I'm preaching a sermon, I'm not trying to impress people with my oratorical eloquence and vocabulary. I'm not throwing out words and nobody knows unless I you know, define it or it's useful. But in writing, I was trying to prove how smart I was. And it backfired on me, punctured my ego. And it showed me that true depth of writing is in one's ability through simple words to explain complex concepts. And it was like, oh, so I'm writing a dissertation, which at the time was the largest writing project I've ever done. And I remember halfway through it, probably sitting at this very desk or somewhere in this house. I remember saying to my wife, I'm never writing a book. I can't wait to be done with this dissertation. This is stressing me out. I'm never going to write a book. Besides, why would I write a book and nobody would read it anyway? This is me telling my wife, Ebony, a few years ago in this house. So, you know, I graduate from school. I finish school. And after finishing school, I just assume that, you know, I'm going to go to pastoring. I'm going to speak more. This writing is all behind me. And no, it wasn't. A pandemic hit. (laughs) Speaking opportunities dried up. And a good friend of mine who I think we'll talk about here in a minute, a good friend of mine who worked at Barna at the time really thought my research had something to it. And so I end up with this book deal with IVP. And now I am like, wait, what? How did I go from barely being able to write an academic project that's six chapters to now I got to produce, you know, I can't remember the contract, like 40 or 50,000 words. (laughs) And I'm, you know, emotionally in a tailspin, like we all are in a global pandemic. I thought I would be pastoring and preaching them. And I hate writing, but now I'm writing and not speaking. What? What is going on? So I tried to, you know, take some of the stuff from the dissertation and, you know, oh, oh, I, the book is pretty much almost done. And I turn it in or send in some samples and the editors are like, no, this is not a dissertation. So my ego was punctured trying to learn academic writing. Now I'm being told academic writing is not what we're looking for. And the contract is already signed. So I am like, well, what are are you all looking for? (laughs) So here's what I do. I go on Oprah's masterclass and I take Malcolm Gladwell's writing masterclass. And I wish I had my notebook near me now, which I don't. But I take notes on Malcolm Gladwell's writing masterclass, which is, you know, like 28, 35 modules of his writing class on nonfiction. So I'm like, well, Malcolm Gladwell is pretty good. So let me just take this writing masterclass and I take all these notes. I mean, I'm scribbling and going back and reading through it. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I learn or at least try to through Malcolm Gladwell's writing class, some of the rules of engagement for writing nonfiction. And then I I try to implement them and I try to use them. And we go through like 10 drafts of the manuscript (laughs) where, you know, some of the big chunks I thought were great were completely scrapped and left on the uh, left on the floor. Some of the other parts that I didn't think were great, publisher love, you know, they coach me through it. Add this, take out this, add this, take out this. I had a big problem owning that this was a book for gospel communicators and preachers. I wanted it to be a book for a broader audience. 
because I felt like, you know, preaching was the doorway into the research was the doorway into the concept, but the concept was far reaching. And I feared writing myself into a corner of who would like the book. And because of that, I didn't want to own the true nature of the book. And they challenged me on it. So I think the benefit of having good editors, a good publisher challenged me through the to the tune of 10 different drafts of the manuscript kind of helped me grow as a writer. (laughs) Yeah. One thing that I really love about your book is that, like you mentioned earlier, you said it's primarily directed to communicators and speakers, and it is super helpful for that. But as I was reading it, I was thinking, as just like a human being living in the world, this is so useful to, I think like the word that comes to me was just empathy. Like it helped me to have greater empathy for other generations because, I mean, even I fall into this too. I think it's easy to kind of for us to pit each other against one another, you know, like the millennials and the boomers angry at each other for various reasons. And we start to have all these spats back and forth and and kind of belittle one another's generations. And so it was really neat to see how you laid out. These are all the different life events that actually like this is why, in general, people are the way that they are in these different generations and why they communicate this way, why they listen this way. And so anyway, I just wanted to share that that was such a, a cool aspect of the book. And, and I'm curious to hear what have you heard from other readers and people who've read the book? What kind of feedback have you gotten? OK, so some of the feedback I've gotten from my peers is how grateful they are all the work that went into this so that I represented us in a credible way. That's been humbling for a lot of my peers. And I mean, preachers and non-preachers to see that if I'm going to represent the millennial generation or speak about generations and I'm a millennial, that we didn't just do it or I didn't just do it from an emotional place, from a defensive place, from a, a reactionary position. So I've heard a lot of people in my generation just affirm the work. Thank you, man, for doing this work to speak credibly. What I heard from the older generations that are older than me, like some Xers and Boomers, is that they wish they had this book before they had certain conversations with their millennial children and grandchildren. And I've had quite a few parents to either email or call me that the contents of my book have helped them reconcile with adult children with whom they have broken relationships with. And we're talking about non-preachers, not preachers. We're talking about just Christian folk who supported my book and who from the book better understand how to communicate with their adult millennial children. Then from preachers, I've just heard their appreciation for how the research is laid out. I don't know how to word it, but what I'm hearing from preachers is thank you for laying out deep research in clear ways <laughs> to help all of us, regardless of, of preaching experience or what generation you're in. I'm hearing preachers say, this is the question we've all been asking. And thank you, man, for, you know, writing in a way that helps us all, regardless if I'm a millennial preacher, extra preacher, boomer preacher, or if I'm trying to reach Gen Z or what have you. I've been hearing great, you know, just a great amount of appreciation because the spirit in which I wrote the book was I didn't even think empathy, but you're right. Empathy is the word. It was to not demonize or not stiff arm 
or not criticize any one generation, but to create an intergenerational empathy is the perfect word. I wasn't even thinking empathy, but I'm so glad that you brought that word out because I wanted to empathize with preachers who mean well and in their desire to connect mean well, but don't really know beyond lingo or changing how they dress, (laughs) how to connect, you know? So that's what I've been hearing, you know, from my generation, a lot of people are just grateful that it's something credible from the older generation. A lot of parents, boomer parents and exo parents are wishing they had it before some crucial conversations that went south. And from a lot of preachers, regardless of generation, just a gratitude for being able to answer a question we were all asking. That's huge. Um, it is. And like really touching too, to hear that that has helped some people, you know, think about how they mend their kind of broken relationships with other family members in different generations. Like that's huge and encouraging to hear. Yeah. I feel like you treated each category with so much respect in a way that doesn't just change the way that we talk about it, but maybe even helps us in how am I thinking at the root about these other people and these other generations and, and honoring them as image bearers as well. Would you have any advice that you would give to other authors of color? What I would say to writers of color is any opportunity you get to use your voice, just always remember the people you represent whose voices have never been heard. In writing this book, for each generational cohort, I also included a section about African-Americans, how they were uniquely shaped in that generation, and women. Why did I do that? Because I felt like I have the opportunity. The book deal is mine. The book is mine. Let me put it in here. And if they say no, we'll go back and forth about that. But if they say yes, I didn't just leverage this opportunity for my voice to be heard. But I thought about other minority groups like women or African-Americans whose voices aren't as often heard or who may not feel that like they're as often uh, you know, heard as others. And so leverage whatever opportunity you have to lend your voice for people who won't get that opportunity or who haven't or who likely will not. As an author of color, you know, like I do, as people of color, that everything is not about race, but we have to be honest about the fact that many people in our race may not have the opportunities we have. And so we should think about that. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois has this concept of the talented tenth that the talented 10th are that 10% of each generation that represent that generation. But their success, even in their success, they're directly connected to the problem of their people. And so remember that without carrying the burden, I'm not saying be burdened or be guilted or make everything a racial issue. What I am saying is be responsible and be accountable and be, you know, and be grateful. Thank you so much for sharing that advice. And thank you, Daryl, for sharing all of your own story with us. And now we'd like to share with all of you that you can get your own copy of Speaking Across Generations, along with the other IVP resource mentioned in this episode at ivypress.com. And use the code EVN40 to get 40% off plus free US shipping. That's EVN40 at ivypress.com. And if you'd like to find out more about Daryl, you can find many of his sermons and speeches on YouTube, and you can also reach him on Facebook and Instagram at 
I am Daryl Hall. Thanks everyone for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast brought to you by IVP. Our producers and hosts are Paloma Lee and Helen Lee. If you're enjoying our show, we would welcome your reviews and recommendations. You can also support our efforts financially at everyvoicenow.com. And we'd love to hear from you directly anytime. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at everyvoicenow or visit the site for show notes, transcripts, and more. And join us next time for another inspiring episode.